Father in heaven, you are holy. Your name is holy. Hallowed be your name. Lord, you're unlike anything we can uh, compare you to. There is no one like you. There's nothing like you. There, there's no power source. There's no, there's no mind. There's no creation. There's no person that could possibly compare to you. You're omniscient. You, you know all things. You're omnipotent. You have all power, all strength. You're the uncreated one. You live outside of time and space. You're the source of all creation. You're the source of life. You're the source of eternity. And so God, who else would we listen to besides you? The philosophies of men, Lord, you laugh at them. God, you have the final word. You have the first word. You are the word. So this morning, we open our Bibles, God. We don't do it loosely. We don't do it looking for, for cute stories and, and helpful tidbits. We open your scripture with a severe source and sense of reverence, God. And we ask that you would speak because we know that you do. Father, open our hearts, open our minds. I pray that we wouldn't just be those that have knowledge, but we would have those, be those that have understanding, and there is a difference. That your word would penetrate our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> How many of you guys know that oftentimes the worst things come in the best packages? You ever, you ever had that? Like, my wife gives me a hard time all the time. Am I cutting in and out? Is, it, is that just me? It's in my head? Okay. Um, if I am, let me know. My wife gives me a hard time all the time because I'm a sucker for packaging. Like, I'll, I'll be on, like, the, the food bar aisle, and I'm like, you know, by the way, a million food bars, isn't there? It's insane, like, the amount of food bars. Um, and you're looking at all of them, and, and you know which one I buy? The one that has the coolest packaging. Okay, that's just the way it goes. And then you eat it, and you're like, wow, I feel terrible. And then you look at the label, and you realize that it's because there was, like, something gnarly in it. So a lot of times, really bad things come in really good packages. Uh, I was jogging uh, last week. And uh, I saw an interesting thing, and I, I, it, was a, it was a road sign. Have you guys seen this? Um, yeah, so th this is, this is a, a statement sort of of um, kind of a, a liberal mindset here. I saw this when I was running. It was kind of funny. I was like, wow, that's insightful. I'd like to think about that. So I took a picture of it. I turned around, and I, like, tried to, I, I kind of tried to make it look like I wasn't because I didn't want, the, didn't want to freak the guy out. So I like, went like this. And he, like, right as I did it, he like, walks out of the house and kind of looks at me funny. And I'm like, hey. And I just kind of kept running like, sorry. Anyways, I just thought it was inter interesting. I, I thought it was, in I, I want to I think about that a little bit. We believe Black Lives Matter, love is love. I am cutting out, huh? Yeah? I was cutting out a little bit. That's weird. I don't know why. Um, might be my batteries. Uh, okay. Whatever. Um, Black Lives Matter, love is love. Feminism is for everyone. No human being is illegal. Science is real. Be kind to all. I thought, that's interesting, okay, and, and, and we all live in the same world, so we know that there's a lot there, and I'm not going to unpack all this because this isn't a message on politics, but my point is, is that sometimes, you know, these things sound really good, don't they? Like, love is love, right? Who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna argue that love is love? 
Who's going to argue, argue that, well, feminism for everyone, that's, that's okay. Who's going to argue that, hu- I don't know, I don't even know what they mean by that. That's why I say that. I literally don't know what they mean by that. I'd have to research what they mean by that. Um, I love that they put it in pink, too. That's cute. Um, although, never mind. Why is, pink a, why is pink a girl color? I'm just saying. Like, I bought a pink sweatshirt, and my, now my daughter calls me a girl. And I, and I don't understand why that has to be that way. No human being is illegal. That sounds really good, right? I mean, that's, that, sh- that sounds good. I mean, you read the Bible, you see a lot about caring for the sojourner and caring for the, the foreigner. Science is real. That's, that's true. Um, the problem is, is, is that we know there's more behind these statements, right? Love is love isn't just mean love is love. Love is love means that you can't define love. Because if my version of love is uh, homosexuality, or if my version of love is letting my, my, my child get a sex change early in life, then you have to call that love. You have, your, your love has to be the same as my love. If it's different, then it's not loving. That's not very loving, I would say. Um, no human being is illegal. Well, that sounds great, but what they really mean is that we shouldn't have any laws about who can come in, in and out of our country. Even Israel, even in the Bible, even God's people, like there was still something that made you an Israelite and something that made you... So, so that's, that's not really helpful. And Science is real. Well, that's funny because science is actually studying something. So if they mean scientific discovery is real, I would say, yes, that's true. But that's debatable. Some of, some of, the, some of the things that science comes up with is debatable. Now, my point here isn't to get political, so don't, don't get in the weeds. My point here is that sometimes really bad things and really false things come in really good packaging. Like, love is love. And, and, and the reason that, that they put it in their, their yard is because, like, who's going to argue with that? Like, who's going to go, like, love is love? Oh, you're not loving. Well, what do you mean by love? I mean, Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're gonna, just going to be there for a minute. We're not going to spend a lot. We're going to spend our time in Colossians. But just briefly, it's interesting that Satan does the same thing to Jesus. He takes something really evil and he puts it in a really good package. And it's when Jesus is really tired and really hungry. You remember he got baptized and then he went out into the wilderness for 40 days. Um, and at the end of the 40 days, Satan comes to tempt him. And remember, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. So he's living into his humanity at this point. He's, he's setting aside, uh, he, he ceased to become God, but he sets aside his, his deistic power, if you will, and he leans into the weakness of his humanity. And it's in this moment that Satan comes in to tempt him. And it's interesting what Satan tempts him with. Chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus is pretty hungry at this point, right? He's pretty hungry. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. A lot of scholars think that um, he took Jesus up to the, the very corner of the Herod's temple where he would have been able to see all of Jerusalem and the kingdom. Uh, he said, the devil took him up, showed him all kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and, and I give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written. You notice Jesus continually responds with scripture. He always brings scripture. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then 
Again, a third time, Satan says, He took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, Satan's quoting Scripture. Do you see that? He's quoting Scripture to Jesus. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended up, or had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So what's happening here? What's happening is that Satan is coming to tempt Jesus, and Jesus isn't stupid. And guess what? Neither is Satan. Uh, and, and neither are you, by the way. If you were stupid, then Satan would just come to you, and, and, and he would just do whatever he wanted. But he knows that you're smart enough that if, if he comes to you in an obvious way, then you're going to go, no, that's Satan, I don't want you. I don't want anything you have to, to do. But he comes, like an angel of light, he comes bearing truths that within the truths bear false realities. So he comes quoting scripture to Jesus. And, and, and it seems like, kind of like the yard sign that I just showed, it kind of seems like undeniable when it's scripture, right? I mean, every cult leader, every false teacher always brings scripture. Look at what the Bible says, right? But just because it's scripture, it's right, being rightly applied, just because the scripture doesn't mean it's being rightly applied. What Satan is trying to get Jesus to do here is to fulfill the ultimate desire of Jesus' heart, but to do it without fully and sufficiently leaning on the Father. Okay? What did he, what did he offer Jesus? You want some bread? You're starving? Make some bread. Jesus certainly had every right to make bread, right? He could have done that. Well, why didn't he? Because that wasn't the right time to make bread. The father had led him out in the wilderness to fast. And then he t Satan takes him. Man, that's going to get really annoying. And I think my batteries. Are they triple A? They're double A's. Could you bring me some more? Double A's. I have them in my, um, my desk drawer. Yeah, thank you. Um, sorry, if I don't do it now, it's just going to be annoying the whole time. Um, so, so what is Satan doing here? He's, he's getting Jesus... Uh, trying to give Jesus the, the ultimate desire of his heart, but he's trying to get him to do it without the Father. He's saying, oh, you want all authority? You want the kingdom? That's what Jesus came to purchase, the cross. He says, I'll give it to you, and you don't have to go to the cross. He says, I'll give you the crown without the cross. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you can get the crown without the cross. Oh, you don't need to suffer. You don't need to struggle. There's no hardship. Just take the crown. What he's trying to get Jesus to do is to, to come out of relying on the Father and start relying on himself. And that's ultimately would have been sinful, right? My point here is that watch out when something that looks good comes to you. Look what's inside of it. Look what's inside of it. This is the battlefront of Christianity. Always has been, always will be. The battlefront of Christianity is not taking Jesus away, but adding things to him. Yeah, you know, think about, uh, okay, you guys are going to just have to, this is going to be annoying, and I'm going to change my batteries, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Okay. You guys all get a discount on your ties now? Okay. <laughs> okay, I hope that works. Who wants dead batteries? Anyone? Woo! Matt, your first day and you get dead batteries, man. Welcome. Also, be blessed. Okay. Double portion. Okay, I think that's it. 
Oh, it's still doing it, huh? Doing it. Man, tech things. Devil's in the details. <sighs> okay, what was I? It's still doing it. Um, the reality is, is that the way Satan wants to mess up the kingdom is not by taking Jesus away completely. Because No, you go, wait a minute, that's a cult. You're, you're saying that, that Allah is God. Obviously, I know that's not true. That's not what he does. Look at Mormonism. Mormonism preserves Christ, right? Jesus is part of Mormonism. The problem is it's not the same Jesus. Right? It's a different Jesus, okay? Um, so, so what happens is the enemy, he's smart. He knows you're smart, so he's going to come in, and he's not going to take Jesus out of the mix, because then you'd know he's going to come in, and he's going to dilute Jesus with a bunch of extra things, a bunch of complexity. And that's why Martin Luther, the reformer, came along and nailed the, the five solas to the door, one of which was Christus, Christus Christ alone. Because the Roman Catholic Church at that day had so overcomplicated the gospel that it was no longer really the gospel. And so Martin Luther came along and started reading his Bible, and he goes, wait a minute. It's just Jesus. It's not Jesus plus, plus the pap. It's pap, pope. Not Jesus plus the pope. It's not Jesus plus Roman Catholic tradition. It's not Jesus plus whatever. It's Jesus alone. That's always been the battlefront of Christianity. So here's Paul writing the letter of Colossians. Now go to Colossians chapter 2. Paul's writing the letter of Colossians, and he's fighting the same battle. He's fighting the same battle of simplicity, the simplicity of Christ, and the sufficiency of Christ, and the supremacy of Christ. And those are all big words to just say that it's all about Jesus. Don't complicate it. People were coming into the church of Colossae and complicating the simplicity and the sufficiency of Jesus by saying you have to do X, Y, and Z if you want to go to the next level of your spirituality. Now, it might be helpful for us to spend just a minute, before we get into the text, to spend just a minute um, trying to understand what the heresy was that was being brought to the Colossian church. Paul's writing a letter of response to some false teaching that had been going on in the, the church at Colossae. Still doing it, huh? This is where my type A nature just, like, can't handle it. Um, I might just, yeah, it's okay. Probably is the cord. You're probably right. It is what it is. Okay. I don't think the enemy wants you to hear this. I'm not kidding. I'm serious. I really don't because this is going to set you free, okay? What was the Colossian heresy? Let's talk about that. And I got to nerd out on you for a minute here, okay? Um, a lot of people debate, a lot of scholars debate, all the books, all the commentaries kind of argue about what was the thing that was coming into the church at Colossae to, to, to try to pull them away from the gospel? Was it Judaism? Uh, was it Gnosticism? Was it Enneagram? What was it? Okay, and I actually think, and I spent some time studying this, I think it was a blend. I think it was a blend of Judaism, which was the Jewish religion apart from Christ, and a blend of what is called Gnosticism, and I'm going to explain that in a minute. But Gnosticism, this false religion, it was kind of the, the first real heresy that came out that Christians had to fight against. And it didn't really develop until the first century. But I think that there was some proto or early Gnosticism that was coming against the church in Colossae even in this time. So I want you to understand what the word Gnosticism means because it's kind of important. Okay? And a lot of the New Testament authors were pushing back against some of the theology of these Gnostics. So what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis which means knowledge, okay? And then you're saying, well, what's wrong with knowledge? Isn't knowledge good? 
Isn't knowledge great? Uh, yeah, the problem was is that they weren't just promoting knowledge. They were promoting secret knowledge. And you have to say it like that, okay? Secret knowledge. It's like, like oh, oh, the, the secret. The, okay, the next level of spirituality. That's what they were promoting. They literally believed that Jesus came not to atone for the sins of the world and all these good things. He came to give us the secret knowledge. And, and he gives these seven secret words. And, and when you die and you go to the spirit world, uh, that you're going to go to the gates of heaven and they're going to let you in if you know the secret knowledge. Okay? Uh, seven secret words. So this is just very obviously a, a man-made religion because that's just how men roll. Okay, so the reality of Gnosticism was that it was birthed out of Greek thinking. And I'm going to throw another big word at you, and I'm going to define it. Greek thinking was, can be referred to as Platonic dualism. Write that down. Your friends will think you're smart. Platonic dualism. Platonic, as in it came from Plato, Greek thinking. Dualism, meaning two, okay? Here's what Platonic dualism says. It says that the spirit world is good, and the physical world is evil. That's the way the Greeks thought. So, Growing, maturing, becoming more spiritual means being less about the physical and less about the spiritual. And some of you are saying, well, isn't that what Christianity says? No, it's actually not what Christianity says. Okay, Christianity doesn't pit physical against spiritual. It doesn't do that. So what Platonic dualism said was physical is evil, spiritual is good. That means the way that we become more spiritual is to have spiritual thoughts, not physical things. Okay? Now, this led to a lot of consequences that Paul's writing against. Let me give you a few of them. You'll see them come up in the text when we get there. Led to things like docetism. Here's another big word you can write down. Docetism is a heresy that Jesus wasn't really human. He was just fully God pretending to be a human. Uh, my friend Todd Miles calls it uh, the Superman heresy. Okay, remember Clark Kent? He wasn't really human. He just wore human clothes, right? And so everybody thought he was human, but if you stabbed him with a fork, it would break, right? Okay, so that's docetism. It's this idea that, that Jesus was really fully God and not really man at all. Because how could he be man? I mean, physical things are evil and spiritual things are good, right? That was a heresy because Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's really important that you get that. It also led to asceticism. Asceticism is the severe depri- the deprivation of one's flesh for the purpose of spiritually leveling up, if you will, okay? So, in other words, like, I, I know there's nothing wrong with fasting, there's nothing wrong with self-discipline, but it's the severe deprecation of the physical body in order to try to achieve some next level of spirituality. The other side of that corn, what, corn? Ow. Man, I'm like, I think I am dyslexic. Okay, the other side of the corn, um, I'm going to start saying that. The other side of the corn kernel. Okay. The other side of the coin is licentiousness. So if my body doesn't matter, if the spiritual realm is all that matters, then I might as well do whatever I want with my body. That led to all kinds of sin, like you can imagine. As long as I keep my mind pure, as long as my body can do whatever it wants. Another issue it led to was spiritism. Spiritism is an obsession with the immaterial world. The immaterial realm. It's like that's, that's all that matters is the immaterial world. Uh, by the way, when, when the new heavens and the new earth, which is God's 2.0 creation, his best creation, it's physical and spiritual, just so you know. It's not just spiritual. It's not a floating heaven. It's physical and it's spiritual. It, this led to sensualism. Sensualism is overemphasis of the senses and the feelings. So needless to say, this proto 
Gnosticism, this, this, this false teaching that was being brought into the Colossian church, it led to a lot of screwy ideas. And Paul is trying to combat some of these screwy ideas. It's also obvious that the Jews were coming to the church at Colossae, and they were bringing some of their thinking, and they were bringing some of their false thinking as well. They were bringing legalism, okay, which is righteousness by what you do rather than what you believe or don't do. That's even more common. Uh, they were bringing traditionalism, which is um, caring more about what our parents' parents' parents did than what's actually right. That's traditionalism. So all of these things were being brought into the Colossian church, which was a Greek church in Asia Minor that was a baby church, kind of like us. Just a brand new church, a lot of new believers, a lot of, a lot of um, new faith, kind of not a lot of depth in, it, in its roots yet in the community. This is a new church and all of this false teachings coming in and diluting the church packaged in really great things, right? Packaged in some really great packaging. So that's kind of the backdrop that we pick it up in. Now let's open our Bibles, Colossians chapter 2. We left off in verse 6. I want to start in verse 1 because I want you to get the flow of Paul's thought, thoughts here. Sometimes we over-outline the Bible, you know, we try to make it fit into a more Western brain. We need to just let Paul's thoughts out, okay? We just need to follow Paul's logic here, and it might skip around, but he's basically getting at one point here. So let's start in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. You know, ministry is a struggle, by the way. Caring for people, caring about people's spiritual life and maturity, it's a struggle. And for Paul, it was something he carried daily. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, the neighboring city, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, we unpacked that last week, so I'm not going to get into that. But here, tune in. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may note the word delude you with plausible arguments. So Paul's concern for the Colossian church is that these... Um, these heretics are going to come into the church and not just give them an outright, flat-out lie, because they would know. He's going to, they're going to come in and delude the gospel. What is delusion? I don't mean someone having a delusion. I mean, what do you do when you delude something? Water you water it down. Good job. Thank you. You water it down. Um, you get a dead battery. Okay. You water it down into the point where it no longer really is what it originally was. And that's exactly what Paul was concerned about. He's like, I'm not, I'm not concerned these guys are going to come in and just give you outright heresy because you would deny that. They're going to come in and they're going to delude your thinking. They're going to try to add complexity to the simplicity of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what they're going to do. And that was the concern uh, that he was worried about. He says, he's, he, he says that they're going to try to delude you with what? With plausible arguments. Here's part of the problem. You know, we, we, we teach our kids about the world and the world thinking, and, and, and we, we paint this picture like they're, uh, the world is just completely, they're idiots. And that none of their arguments really hold any water, and, and, none of it, and, and then they go off to some secular university, and they sit under some really smart, um, you know, seemingly moral, liberal uh, professor who recycles his garbage and didn't cheat on his wife, and they go, well, but, but he's an agnostic, Here's the reality, okay, the world has very plausible arguments, very attractive, very well thought out arguments. If you go to secular university and you study secular thinking, um, you, you very well will be enticed by it because, I said it again, I'll say it again, Satan's not stupid and he knows you're not stupid either, okay? Satan doesn't show up and 
the pitchfork and, you know, like, like in, in a red suit with a bifurcated tail. You know, he, he shows up like an angel of light. And his philosophies and the lies that he brings are compelling. They're attractive. You know, some of you in here are very attracted to the idea of what the world is selling right now. I mean, I like the idea of being able to say, hey, yeah, marry whoever you want to marry, be whatever gender you want to be. I mean, believe in whatever you want to believe. Truth is equally valid to my truth. That feels great. That sounds good. It appeals to everything I, I like as a human being. The problem is, it's wrong. It's wrong. These are plausible arguments. Don't undersell the arguments that we combat as Christians. They're plausible. For I am absent in the body, verse 5, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. That's Paul's desire for the church at Colossae, that they would have firmness. He says earlier that they wouldn't be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. And that's, that's what maturity is. It's being grounded and understanding what the truth is, so that you're not tossed around every time you flip on CNN or every time you flip on your favorite podcast or whatever, YouTube. Now, verse 6 is the summary statement for the whole rest of the chapter, so it's important. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's a verse probably worth underlining. Okay? As you received Christ, so walk in him. The way that you received him first, keep walking in him in that way. You don't need the secret knowledge. Okay? That's what he's getting at. How did they receive Christ? They received him as the Lord, right? Christ, that's Messiah. Jesus, that's a man. The Lord, Kyrios, Master, Sovereign, King. The way they received him was as their Lord, okay? He's saying the way that you received him, keep walking in him. Now, we'll, we'll come back and develop that more at the end of the sermon. Verse 7, he gives this picture of what that looks like. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul the picture for us, a visual for us of what it looks like continue in the way that we first began. And he picture, it's kind of random. You got to visualize it. Our kids are back there making something kind of like it right now. Uh, it's, it's, it's a building with roots that's being built up and overflowing. He, he takes all these different pictures and he kind of crams them into one. Okay. But the, the point of the picture is that you would have your root system deeply connected into what? Secret knowledge? Mysteries? Spiritual things? What? Christ and his word, which are synonymous. Okay, good job. Christ, that your roots would be in Christ. This is the picture. Now, what does it mean to be rooted in Christ? First of all, it means that all of your nutrients and all of your life is coming from your root system. Did you know that? That as a human being, your roots are either in the world or they're in Christ. Okay? Uh, when you're rooted in Christ, all of your nutrients, all of your life comes from that. It was amazing. I was backpacking this summer uh, on the wilderness, and I just saw this. I should have took a picture of it. I saw this tree that was literally like, dangling off a cliff. I mean, it was like pointed out this way. It looked like there was no way it should be there. Um, and then you look at it, the, the, the roots had literally wrapped around a boulder and then gone around the boulder, maybe about 10 to 15 feet, and then found a way to dig into the hill. And that tree had survived. I'm talking like 20 feet of snow, 30 feet of snow up there in the winter. That tree had survived all kinds of craziness. Why? Because its root system had found a way to dig into nutrients. And it was not only healthy, it was stable. 
Okay, that's the picture that I think Paul wants us to see here. He says, be rooted in Christ. He is your nutrients. It's astounding what you can endure when your root system is in him. I mean, I see Christians go through the hard things with such faith, and I know when they do that their root system is in him. If you get really, really scared every time you turn on the news, you might want to ask the question, what is my root system in? What is it that's giving me stability? Is it something that transcends this world? Or is it something that's so rooted in this world that if this world goes to hell in a handbasket, which it is, by the way, um, then I'm, I don't know what to live for. He says, be built up and established. I was just on a, a trip down in uh, Anderson, and, and we were in our Airbnb was right by this field of um, walnut trees. It was kind of cool, walnut trees. And you look at the walnut tree, and the tree had been grafted into another tree's stump. Have you ever seen that before? It's called grafting. They, they literally take um, a tree that doesn't really have, uh, isn't indigenous to the, the surrounding, doesn't really do good in the environment, and, and they, they graft it into a tree that does really well in the environment. And the two become one tree. So it's like a big stump, smaller tree coming out of it. The idea is, is that the health, the nutrients of the original root system now benefit the new tree. Okay, that's what Paul's getting at. And by the way, when he says be rooted, he's saying it as though it's something that already happened. He's saying it as though you already are connected because of your union with Christ. So you are rooted in Christ. Continue to be rooted in Christ. Built up, established, abounding. Abounding means overflowing. It means that your life is literally a life source. You know, trees are incredible things. They become little ecosystems. Trees support all kinds of life. There's millions and millions of bugs and birds and squirrels that all find existence and find life because of a tree. The idea is that if you're rooted in Christ, you and yourself become an ecosystem of life. You're overflowing with thanksgiving. People find life, draw life from you. It's an incredible thing. He says, oh, abounding or overflowing with what? Thankfulness. Thankfulness is one of the, the, the most obvious identifiers of a believer, being thankful. It's also one of the most freeing things you can ever do. Thankfulness just brings freedom. Verse 8. Now Paul's going to give a contrasting picture. See to it that no one takes you captive, note that word, by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So the counter picture that Paul paints here is you, you want to be like a tree rooted don't be like a captive. Don't be like someone who's literally taken captive. Now, the word captive there, it literally means kidnapped. It was a, a word that was used to describe someone that would come and plunder or take over a ship. Think of pirate. He's like, don't let someone pirate you. Don't let someone kidnap you. Don't let someone steal your mind. Because someone is actively trying to steal your mind. Someone is actively trying to take you captive, to pull you out of your root system, and to pull you into captivity. And what is it that... Uh, he says not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, that doesn't mean that all philosophy is evil. That's not what Paul's getting at here. There's actually, the, if you look at the Greek word, it's actually the word hes in front of it, which is the, meaning that this is a proper name. It's the philosophy. He's saying don't be taken captive by the philosophy, which means that probably was the name of this cult or this sect or whatever, this group that was coming in and telling these guys about the secret knowledge. It was probably called the philosophy. Don't let them take you captive because philosophy ultimately, he says, is empty deceit. 
You know what empty deceit, you know what my free translation of that is? Full of hot air. Full of it. These guys are full of it. It's hollow speculation is what's coming to the Colossian church. It's man's limited understanding to put forth an absolute reality. That's what philosophy is ultimately. It's man who's sort of inside the box of our limitations, inside time and space, um, trying to figure out why we're here. And the only way you can figure out why you got in the box is that you in there, right? So that's why we look to the Lord to give us wisdom. Philosophy is man's best attempt at figuring out why things are the way things are. But ultimately, it's hollow speculation. It's human tradition. Now, who is ultimately responsible for the capturing? Look, look again here at verse 8. I want you to see this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits. What is that? Of the world and not according to Christ. He's saying someone here is trying to take you captive. Who it is is the elemental spirits. Now, commentators argue about who that is or what that is. There's two different ways you can translate it. I'll give you my opinion. The first way is elemental spirits just means the basic principles of the world. The other way, and I think the better way to translate that, is elemental or ruling principalities, as ESV translates it, elemental spirits, meaning that all of this lying that's happening, all of this complexity, all of the dilution, all of the captivity that's coming, it's coming from a source. And that source is the ruling principalities of this world. The demonic realm. I know that gets weird when you talk about that. We don't like it, but it's a reality. Paul says, hey, you know who's trying to lie to you guys? Satan. He's trying to lie to you. And he's really good at it. He's really good at it. He wants to take you captive. Now, there's some good news we'll get to about that here in a minute. By the way, you know, you know where the enemy is most at work? It's not at the purple parrot. It's right here. It's in the church. That's where he is most at work. I've used this analogy before, but if you're a sniper and you got a guy 100 yards away and a guy 500 yards away, which one do you shoot first? The one that's 500 yards away because he's almost gone. You know who Satan hates? He hates the people that aren't in his kingdom anymore because he wants them back. You know where he's at working? He's working in the church. And you know how he often attacks the church? Through false teaching, false doctrine. He wants to delude your faith so that slowly but surely you stop connecting to him and start connecting to something else. That's what the enemy wants to do. And Paul's onto it. He's letting them know about it. Doctrine matters. False teaching leads to false thinking, which leads to false believing, which leads to hell. Do you understand that? The more I pastor, the more I realize that doctrine matters. It's not just something that divides us. It matters. Because if you think wrongly then you will believe wrongly. And if you're believing the wrong thing, that has eternal consequences. So we got to make sure we know what we believe. That's what Paul's getting at. Verse 9. You guys good? Are you tracking with me? Are we good? Everybody alive? Okay. Verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Guys, there's a sermon in every verse in this book. It's so hard not to get into this stuff. For in him the whole fullness of deity wells bodily. We could spend the whole day trying to figure out what that means exactly. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Remember all the demonic forces I was talking about? Who's the head of it all that? Christ. He doesn't cause it, but he rules over it. He's ultimately ruling over it. Now, what is this idea of the fullness of the deity dwelling bodily? 
Basically, what Paul is saying is he's saying, I know you guys, these guys are coming into the church and they're trying to tell you that there's more fullness, more richness through the secret things and the spiritual things. But he said, guys, listen to me. The fullness of God is in Christ only. Christ alone. Solus Christus. It's all there. The fullness of the Godhead is accessible and available only through the person of Christ. So what are you doing looking at other options? There's no other place. There's no other where to get it. Let me give you an example. So J.R. Tolkien wrote, obviously, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And, and, and it's amazing if you do some studying about him. He didn't just write a book. He created an entire world. He created, whole, he created multiple languages. I mean, this guy, the infrastructure this guy had in his brain to create the world of Lord of the Rings was incredible. Now, if you're reading Lord of the Rings and you're sort of confused about something and you, you want more insight... Um, and you have two options. One option is to literally sit with the man himself, J.R.R. Tolkien, sit down, cup of coffee, and ask him, hey man, what did you mean when you said that? Option B would be to get on some stupid online platform and listen to guys that still live with their mom talk about what they think Tolkien meant. Which one do you think would be better? It's an obvious question. Option A, right? Okay, so what Paul's saying is, saying, hey, hey, these guys that still live with their mom are coming in and they're telling you how to be spiritual. Jesus is the fullness of God. Amen. He has the answers. Go to him. Yep. Access him. Tune into him. Connect to him. Root in him. Fill your screen with him. That's the point. Now, I just, this is a side note, but it's really interesting. Remember I talked about docetism, the fact that these guys were saying Jesus wasn't really God, he was just God looking like a man? Because if he was God and he became spiritual, or he became physical, then that wouldn't be very spiritual. But notice what, notice what Paul says. He says, in verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity, that's God, dwells what? Spiritually? Bodily. Interesting. The whole fullness of the deity dwells in Christ's physicality. Like we talked about last week, Christ lives in you, physically. Isn't that amazing? I, don't, I can't even figure that out. I don't even know how that works. But Christ's goal is to fill his creation with his glory, to fill it physically and spiritually. It's kind of a cool thing. So Paul's refuting that idea that Jesus um, is somehow only spiritual and not physical. Okay? One more thing here on this verse before we move on. Notice that he says it's, it's past tense. You have been filled. Have been filled. Now, why would he emphasize that these Christians have already been filled? Okay, they've already been filled because he wants them to, to refute the idea that they need to go be filled somewhere else. It's like you've already been given everything that you have. Listen, spiritual maturation is realization, not spiritualization. I know that's a lot of Asians, but let me explain it. Spiritual maturation, meaning growing up, is about realizing what's already yours in Christ, not going and inventing it or adding more to it. You've already been given everything you need in Christ. It's about growing to realize it. Verse 11. In him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, Paul's bringing in a picture here from Judaism. He's bringing the picture of circumcision. Now, why is he doing that? He's doing that because he wants them to see what circumcision did in the Old Testament is now being done in the New Testament, and it's a finished work. Okay, why did 
God tell the Israelites to circumcise their kids? There's a few really obvious answers. Number one, possession. When you were circumcised, it meant that you belonged to the Lord. Secondly, submission. When you were circumcised, it meant that you followed the Lord. And thirdly, covenant. When you were circumcised, it meant you were in a covenant with him. Okay? Now, that's all Old Testament stuff. Why is Paul bringing this up? He's saying, listen, you too have been circumcised, not physically, but spiritually. You have been circumcised with a circumcision that is not by hands. Okay? Uh, it's the cutting away of the flesh of our heart. You said you've been given a new nature. Now, Paul's point here is, I'm going to make it as simple as I possibly can because I don't want to lose you. His point here is, you're already in the club, buddy. Don't let someone tell you you need to go get something to get in the club. Don't let someone tell you that you have to go do X, Y, and Z before you're really in the club. He's like, you've already been circumcised, not physically, but spiritually. What is the sign of circumcision for the believer? It's salvation. It's the Holy Spirit living within He's the symbol that you now belong. And then he uses another picture, which, by the way, we had two baptisms last week, which is really exciting. Um, and some of you guys were there for that. And he gives this picture of what baptism is in verse 11. Uh, by putting off the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He's saying that, hey, if you've been baptized, again, don't let someone tell you that you're missing something, that you're lacking something. If you've been baptized, you are literally united with both the death and the life of Christ. I explained this to the guys getting baptized last week. When you get baptized, it's a picture that you have been connected eternally to Jesus' death, meaning everything he did on the cross is now yours, and you're connected eternally to his life, meaning like he resurrected, you're going to be resurrected. That's what baptism is. So again, Paul's point is don't let anyone tell you you're not in the club. Don't let anyone tell you that you don't have life. Don't anyone tell you that, you're, that you need more than Jesus. Verse 13. I'm going to try to speed up here. Sorry. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Okay, that's what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. My mic cut out so the live stream wouldn't be able to hear it. Penal substitutionary atonement. That's a big word that means penal, you deserved hell. Substitution, Jesus took hell for you. Atonement at one, you've been brought back together and reconciled with God. That's really good news. Okay, that's really good news. What Paul's saying, you're saying, you had a laundry list of sin. Okay, I heard a pastor the other day say this. If you saw everything you'd ever done in your life, all the sin that you'd ever done, you would be catatonic with guilt. You wouldn't be able to move. You wouldn't be able to function. You'd be crippled. God's grace holds back you from seeing all of the sin that should be ascribed to you. Penal substitutionary atonement means that Jesus came on and he drank that cup of wrath, that God's wrath was poured out on him instead of on you. He gave you his righteous life and took your garbage and paid for it. God is not unjust. If he forgave your sin, he'd be unjust. He doesn't forgive it. He pays for it. He absorbs it. He drinks it. And then he gives you his righteousness. Atonement is at one mint. You've been brought back together into one because of the person of Christ. That's good news. Amen? But that's not even the end of the good news. It gets better. Check it out. Okay, not only is that true, but in verse 15, he also disarmed the rulers and authorities. 
and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Just got really dark when I read that. That's kind of cool. He triumphed over all rule and all darkness. You know, there's a big debate among scholars. Scholars like to debate. Did you know that? Um, they love to debate, and it just confuses normal, stupid people like me because I don't know which one to believe. But they debate about something that I don't think they should debate about. They say, what was really the focus of the cross? Was it Jesus paying for our sin debt and, 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 and appeasing the wrath of God that was meant for us? Or is it Jesus having victory over darkness and taking back the title deed to the cosmos and defeating the enemy? And they, they argue about that. And you know what I say? Yes! Both things are true. Why? Because they're both right there. Your sin debt has been canceled and Satan has been defeated. Both are true. Both are different facets of the same gospel, the same reality, the same truth, and both are really good news. Really good news. Look at some of the language that Paul uses here. This is incredible. He says he disarmed the rulers. What does that mean? It means they're paraplegics. They can't do anything except talk. They have no power. They have no authority. They have no power over you because you're in the kingdom of light. So all they can do is run their mouth. He's disarmed them, okay? Uh, not only has he disarmed them, he's put them to open shame. In other words, he's made them undignified. He's paraded them in a victory procession. The picture here is that when you win and you take over a, a, a particular army and then you your victory procession back into town and you're leading uh, the, the people you've defeated in a shameful way, handcuffed. He's like, hey, we've, Jesus put them to open shame, the rulers. That's what he did there. The, in Matthew 119, it's the same word Joseph, um, when Joseph decides not to expose Mary's pregnancy. He didn't want to shame her. He didn't want to put her to open shame. Jesus shamed the enemy. He shamed the enemy. That's good news. He disarmed them. He shamed them. And he also triumphed over them. Now, can I ask a question? If Jesus triumphed over darkness, why does it feel like we're still fighting? I mean, you gotta, you gotta ask that question. Like, why does it feel like we're, what, didn't he say it's finished on the cross? I wanna try to help you to understand that quick. There's an old saying, man, that's annoying. There's an old saying, we've been freed from sin's penalty, we're being freed from sin's power, and we have not yet been freed from sin's presence. Why? Think of it like this. If you're behind enemy lines and the war is declared over, the enemy doesn't know it yet. The war's already over, but the enemy's still fighting. Why? They haven't got the news. Here's another way you could look at it. There's a difference between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. You know the difference? D-Day was when we stormed Normandy Beach. And the enemy knew, okay, Hitler knew that if we took Normandy Beach, the war was over. And we did. Praise the Lord, right? We took Normandy Beach. But was the war over when we took Normandy Beach on D-Day? No, it wasn't over. <laughs> Why? Because there was still fighting to do. So even though the war was really, basically at that point, it was, it was pretty obvious who was going to win. The fighting continued. Okay? This is the idea. We are behind enemy lines, the victory is ours, but the enemy hasn't quite got the memo yet that he's lost. But even though he hasn't got the memo, he is disarmed. Do you understand? Which means that the most important thing you can think about as a Christian is this. What are you believing? What are you listening to? 
What are you allowing to shape your thinking? Because if all he can do is talk, you better believe he's going to be good at it. And what you're rooted in matters. Verse 16. Therefore, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Here we get a picture of some of the things that these people were telling the Colossians they had to do. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about vision, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished, knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So what these guys were coming into the Colossian church and doing was saying, yeah, Jesus is great, but don't forget. Don't forget the new moon feasts. Don't forget the new moon Sabbath. Don't forget asceticism. Don't forget to worship angels. Don't forget whatever, visions. You could categorize it like, categorize it like this. They're coming in and telling the Galatians about observances, things you have to do. Okay, Food, drink, festivals, new moon Sabbath. Don't forget to do those things. Those are important. And then they come in and tell them about abstinences. Don't forget to not do these things. That's what asceticism is. It's then they come in and with mystical obsessions. Okay, mystical obsessions, worship of angels. They were looking to angels, these spirit beings, to, to somehow deliver them as though it was some level up spiritual maturity. Don't forget about experiences. This is going on in detail, verse 18, going on in detail about visions. They're coming in and telling these guys they have to do all of these extra things. Paul's estimation of these guys is, verse 18, they're puffed up. And again, that means full of hot air. They're full of it. They're full of it. They're trying to bring captivity to the Colossian church. In verse 20 through 23, one of my favorite passages when you're trying to debunk religion. Verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Guys, listen, you have one boss. It's not me. It's Christ. Why? He's like, why are you submitting back to the people that Christ died to free you from? You're not a slave to them anymore. And he says, do not handle, quotations, do not taste, do not touch. These are the things that they were telling the Colossians. Hey, don't eat this, don't touch that, don't handle this. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Listen to this. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of flesh. Have you ever noticed that no matter how hard you try to stop doing something, it just makes you want to do it more? That's what Paul was talking about in the book of Romans. He said, sin uses the law as an agent to get me to sin more. He's like, I didn't even want to covet until I realized I couldn't covet, and now I want to covet all the time. Paul is saying, these guys are coming in promising you freedom and what they're really promising you is captivity. And let me say, one of the primary avenues of captivity in the church is the church. Because you come into a Christian subculture and when you come in, you look around and you go, that guy's wearing a mask, that guy's not wearing a mask, that guy has a bigger Bible than me. That guy stands up, that guy sits down. And all of a sudden, complexity comes onto you. And you feel like, well, I gotta do all those things. Well, they homeschool their kids. Well, they read King James only. Well, he went to seminary. I mean, it's complexity. And there's nothing wrong with diversity. 
but it's complexity. And unfortunately, Christian communities, they begin to emphasize these things that really are, are just things, and they begin to put them on the same plane as Christ and then cripple new Christians. And even worse, they turn them into a, a devil. They turn them into people that are little legalists that are running around telling everybody their church has to run like their church does. Oh, you study the New Living Translation? Well, you know the King James is the only real translation. No, it's not. Tell anybody that. Oh, you're an Arminian? Well, you know the Bible preaches Calvinism. Shut up. <laughs> we can argue about that. I like talking about that. That's fine. Don't tell me that that's the point, because it's not. What you're doing is you're creating complexity. You guys do communion once a month. You should do communion every week. That's fine. Do communion every week. But don't tell us we have to do that. That's not freedom in Christ. He is sufficient for us. Listen, complexity, man-made religion is zero help in making yourself change. You really want to change? It, you don't change by rules. You change by heart change. You change when your affections change. So what's Paul's point here? What's Paul getting at here? What's his summation? His summation, I'm going to say it in one sentence, and you might write it down because it's really simple. If your Jesus is big enough, you don't need anything else. If your Jesus is big enough, you don't need anything else. There are millions of examples that we could probably pull out within Christianity of how we have overcomplicated the gospel. I'm just going to give you a few that I wrote. Jesus plus some religious experience. There's nothing wrong with religious experience, but just don't go around telling everybody they have to have it. Jesus plus political party or conservatism. Don't ever tell someone they can't be a Christian unless they vote Republican. Don't ever say that. Please. Jesus plus church on Saturday. Jesus plus King James Bible. Jesus plus homeschooling your kid. Jesus plus a particular denomination. Jesus plus the Pope. Jesus plus social activism. Jesus plus missions. Jesus plus a title or a position. Jesus plus, oh wait, now we get into the minuses. We're even worse with minuses in the church. You're only a Christian if you don't do this. Okay? You're only a Christian if you don't watch Harry Potter. Jesus minus Harry Potter. That's Christianity, right? That was the fight that I grew up in. Jesus minus secular music. Jesus minus having a comfortable life. Or Jesus plus having a comfortable life. Whatever. It's all... None of those things are evil, by the way. I'm not saying those are evil things. I'm saying that if you predicate Christ's fullness, listen to this statement, if you predicate Christ's fullness on that thing, you have created bondage for yourself and everyone around you. You do not predicate Christ's fullness on anything but Christ because he is the fullness of God. Okay? Now, we can have opinions and views and positions and things that we think are ethical or non-ethical, but just don't tell somebody that they're only going to be spiritual if they do whatever it is. It's really important. What makes these lead to captivity is that they are a one-way power sucker. Okay? You know the difference between a power supply and a power sucker? Okay, this is a power sucker, my iPad. I plug it in, it takes power. A power supply is the wall. I plug that thing, it gives power. We we take these things onto ourselves because we think they're going to help us spiritually. And that's fine. But when we start looking to them to draw power, spiritual intellectualism, theology, we start looking to the, the academic world to give us life. We start looking to our morals to give us life. We start looking to our, our training to give us life. Those things are takers. They're not givers. Only Christ gives. 
Only Christ gives. This is what Israel did in the Old Testament. They thought, you know what would make Jesus, or you know what would make Yahweh better? If we added some other gods to him. I mean, Yahweh's great, right? But we should take some other gods and put them in the temple. We can't lose, right? Yahweh plus other gods. It's awesome. It's the American way, right? More is always more. Wrong. The idols became a bondage in Israel because they took. They took from Israel. They promised to give, but they took. They took. It's going off more and more. It, it, they literally drained the life from Israel because they were not real. Let me, let me put it like this. You can't improve on what's already perfect. Christ is perfect. Stop trying to fix him. Stop trying to help him. Stop trying to lend a hand. He doesn't need your help. He's perfect. If, I, if you add a brand new Maserati, okay, I walked up to you and said, hey, bro, I got this spoiler that I took off of my old Honda Civic, and I got some super glue. Can I improve it for you? What would you say? So get away from me. Can't improve on what is already perfect. What you do is you spend time just figuring out how beautiful the perfection it was intended to be is. Religion and complexity is man trying to improve God's Maserati. Jesus is the perfect source of life for you. All maturity is available in him. Now, I want to point out this last thing. I'll close here. Paul is trying to see your call to actively resist this captivity. Okay, your call to actively resist this captivity. And I just want to give you really quickly five things on how to avoid the captivity of complexity. Okay, five ways to avoid the captivity of complexity. Number one, fight and resist. This takes an active participation. This means that you're aware of the fact that you are prone to overcomplicate the gospel. You are prone to legalism. You are hardwired for legalism. Just like my floor picks up dirt without me even trying, you pick up legalism without even trying. You pick up bondage without even trying. Paul wants you to see it, and then he wants to resist it. He says in verse 18, let no one take you captive. Let no one judge you, verse 18. Let no one do it. Don't let anybody do it. Keep it simple, stupid. Kiss, right? Keep it simple, stupid. Okay, I'm not calling you stupid. That's just an expression that people use. Okay. Number two. Let good things be good things without making them God things. I'm so glad you love King James. Just don't make it a God thing. I'm so glad you're a Calvinist. I think there's richness in Calvinistic teaching. I have Calvinistic leanings myself. I think God's, uh, I'm not getting into that. I think the fact that God saves in his own will is amazing, but don't make it a God thing. Don't worship it. Okay? What does verse 17 says? He says, you worship these things, but they're the shadow of Christ. Don't worship the things that are meant to point to him. Treasure him all the more. Number three, run a diagnostic. Okay, I want to give you some homework. Run a diagnostic. Uh, you know, when your finances are not going well, what do you do? You look at your bank statement, and you know what the, the little suckers are that take all your money? There's those little subscriptions. Disney Plus, Netflix, coffee, all those things you didn't realize that you were paying for. So you run a di diagnostic. You figure, what are the things that are stealing my joy? What are the things that are keeping me captive? Okay? They're the unlisted ingredients in your food. Do you know, I found this out, that if something is less than half a gram, they don't have to put it in the ingredients list? So run a diagnostic. What things in your life used to be life-giving, but now they've become life-sucking? What things in your life used to be life-giving? And there's two potential reasons for that. One, they need to go. 
Or more likely, your expectation needs to change of what you're going to get out of that thing. That's probably more likely because you can't get rid of your kids. <laughs> probably need to change your expectation for what your kids are giving you and place that on Christ, your sufficiency on Christ. Has he actually asked you to do these things that, you, that you're carrying around? Or did you just do it once and then feel like to love Jesus, you have to do it every time? You've got to declutter the complexity that you're prone to as Christians. He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That doesn't mean you don't have a yoke, it just means it's the right one. It means it's the one that he crafted for you, not the one you put on yourself because someone told you one time you had to do something. Or you told yourself, more likely you have to do something. Number four, sink your roots. Sink your roots into what? Sink your roots into the completed work of Christ, the person of Christ. You know, when I was 17 and I was not a Christian, I was blatantly defiant to trusting the Lord. I didn't want to get saved. I knew he was real and I full on refused him. And do you know why I didn't want to get saved? Complexity. I just didn't think I could do it. I, I didn't like it fix myself. I can't change my behavior. I can't make myself want to serve Jesus. I can't make myself want to stop sinning. That's too hard. That's too complex. And you know what made me get saved? Simplicity. When I realized in an instant, by God's grace, that Jesus was going to do all that for me. He was going to do all that for me. And in that moment, I became rooted in Christ. And the goal now is to continue, last point, to continue in the way that you began. Do you remember what it was like when you first got saved? It wasn't complex. It was very simple. It was a simple surrender to the Lordship of Christ. It was a simple surrender to the Lordship of Christ. When I first got saved, I was very aware that God could save anyone. That's why new believers are the best evangelists. They're like, man, he saved me. He could save that guy. And then we kind of grow in our spirituality, and we start to think, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty good. That guy's pretty jacked. God may not save him. He could save me, but I don't know that guy. Now, go back to the beginning. Go back to the way you used to think when you were very aware of God's ability and willingness to save. When I was first saved, I was more aware of my need for his word as sustenance, not just knowledge. So Paul's point here, I'll just simplify it. Paul's point is get back to the way you did it when you first got saved. He isn't saying to keep being a baby and keep pooping your pants and not walk around. He's saying take the sincerity of being a new believer, the simplicity of being a new believer, and plug into that and keep walking in that way. It's Jesus only. If Jesus is, if your Jesus is big enough, you don't need anything else. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.